come to really the highlight of our time together is to open God's Word and study it and to allow His voice to be heard, which is His Word, uh, the completed revelation of His Spirit. So, so glad for this opportunity. I hope you have a Bible with you. We'll spend all of our time this morning in the Scriptures and discussing them and thinking about them together. So I hope that you have that with you. If you do, why don't you go ahead and turn it to Acts chapter 20. We're going to start there and uh, move from there elsewhere, but go ahead and take your Bible and make your way to Acts chapter 20. Uh, We're in the middle of a a break from the book of Matthew. We're working consecutively through, uh, paragraph by paragraph, through the book of Matthew. And we're just about done with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. In fact, we're right at the break, um, the chapter break in our English Bibles. We're right between 6 and 7 in the chapter break. And so we've taken a moment, uh, a few weeks here, to set aside to think and to talk uh, from Scripture about the church and really to remind you or to instruct you about the foundational components of the local church. Uh, We're a brand new one, so it's helpful for us to think about why we're here, uh, what we're trying to accomplish, who it is that we have set out to please. And so that has been our goal. We began several weeks ago with a, a quick look just one week at at our head, which is Jesus Christ himself, uh, setting the table for the remainder of our discussion, which revolves around the guts of the church or the inside of the church, which is the philosophy of ministry that drives us, as well as the body of the church, which is seen in its leadership and then in its membership. And so at this point in our study, we're right in the, we're in the second part of three, dealing with leadership and the body of the church. And last week we looked at the roles of leadership as seen in the New Testament and outlined for us in the New Testament. This week we'll look at the character of leadership, and next week we'll look at the function of leadership here at Grace Church and how that fleshes itself out according to um, our own local experience here at Grace Church. Acts chapter 20 is a place to begin because I wanted to share just a word of personal testimony. There are two verses in Acts chapter 20 that stand as uh, roadblocks for me every time I read them because of the overwhelming uh, testimony that they are about the Apostle Paul's ministry. Um, If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the Apostle Paul was the premier church planter of the early church. Um, He went throughout the known world uh, sharing the gospel with people, gathering believers together, and founding local churches in various cities all over um, what was at that point the Western world, what is modern-day Turkey, Greece, and Italy. And Paul spent uh, four missionary journeys in in total uh, with God's people, going back through these areas, rehearsing, meeting them, and that's where we find him in Acts chapter 20. He is uh, here meeting with a group of elders, a group of leaders from the church at Ephesus, which he had been a part of founding with Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus, Paul was not going to go back by Ephesus on this third trip. He was in Miletus. He was trying to get to Jerusalem as quickly as he could. And so he called for the elders from Ephesus, from that local church, Grace Church at Ephesus, if you will. He had those elders come and meet up with him. And this is the word of testament. We've read this already this in this series. But I wanted to read these words to you because these are particularly terrifying to me. Verse 26 says, and this is Paul speaking about himself. He says in verse 26 of Acts chapter 20, Therefore I testi- testify to you this day 
um, that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, which is an amazing statement. Paul saw himself as accountable for the blood, that is the guilt of those that he ministered to. He saw himself in some way responsible for the souls that he gave care to. Um, We find this elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 11. He talks about all of his beatings plus the added pressure of the responsibility for the churches. And he says here, he washes his hands, he is innocent of the blood of all of you, that is the Ephesian elders. Why? Verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That particular verse is one of the most daunting, terrifying testimonies that we find in the New Testament. Because the Apostle Paul could say to the Ephesian believers, I presented to you God's mind. It was obviously not exhaustive. He was only there for approximately three years. And yet he could say boldly, I have given you a picture, a full, a complete, a whole picture of the very mind, the wisdom, the counsel of God. And as one who teaches and preaches on a weekly basis, it is my goal to present to you the whole counsel of God. And and that's a terrifying thought. That's an overwhelming responsibility. It particularly applies this week because I struggle coming to topical messages like we're doing now on the church. I don't enjoy these as much in their delivery as I do working consecutively through a book of the Bible. For one reason, I am left to discern what the Lord would have me to share from His Scriptures when we come to a topical section. So there are myriads of passages that could speak to this issue, and I am selecting out of them several that I think are critical and key. That leaves a weight of responsibility that I don't normally share. I don't ever have to wonder what I'm teaching next week. I just know it's the next couple verses from Matthew. And I get to find out what you and I are going to learn from Matthew. So this is not my favorite form of teaching, and yet I have comforted myself with one of the most terrifying verses this week, that this discussion about the church and about what God demands of His people is a very real component of the whole wisdom, the whole counsel of God for you and for me. This fits perfectly within... uh, the, the goal, the desire for you and I to know why we're here, what we're expected to be, and how we are expected to go about this life that we live as followers of Jesus Christ. And so as much as it has been a battle for me to teach you topically, it is an encouragement to know that even in our mini-series, which has turned into a mega-mini-series, on the church, we are knowing now better the mind of God, the counsel of God, which is our goal. It is our desire so that we can rightly reflect his character as his people, uh, his church. Just as a side note, topical preaching is just shorter and more variety of exposition. Okay? Sometimes I hear people talk about topical preaching as a negative form of preaching. It's not a negative, it's just. Uh, more exposition from varied passages in Scripture so that we can see what God thinks from various places in one sermon. And so it's not necessarily a style. It can be. There are those who teach topically so that they don't engage with Scripture. 
But actually, it's just more difficult because I'm expositing and exegeting and working hard to understand multiple sections. And this little brain doesn't do well with multiple study places. Uh, So I trust that you'll bear with me this morning as we work through this section of Scripture that we're going to look at. Then we're going to move to another one and then another one. And I trust that we'll see from this a better image, a more clear image of what God desires for us as his people and what in particular he desires for us as his church and even Grace Church of the Valley. So we come to this no different than any other time. There is no uh, topical messages do not allow for us to say, well, this one doesn't apply to me. This is still the mind of God. It is still the living, active word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces in, it divides in places where there's no division, and it goes in there and it does its work. And so our role this morning is to submit ourselves to this living word on this very practical issue and to give ourselves wholly to the study of this important facet of our lives as believers, which is our existence within the local church. Let's pray together as we begin our time and ask God to work through this study and shape our thinking. Father, it is our desire this morning to be renewed in our minds. We have spent this week, many of us, battling with the message of our world, battling with the the worldview that surrounds our culture. And we have come here this morning to hear from you, to allow your word to shape our thinking and even in this most practical scenario, Father, we want to have our, sh- our thinking shaped by the, the everlasting truth of your word. And so we ask for sovereign grace, sovereign grace to understand, sovereign grace to have our minds enlightened to the realities that we see in the scriptures, sovereign grace to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, so that we might bear better the image of our Savior. And so we ask this, I ask this, that you would send your Spirit in a working way, in a very special and unique sense this morning. He is here with us who are yours. He indwells us. He fills us. He empowers us for service. He illuminates our hearts and minds as we study. And we desire for Him to do so, and to do so powerfully in these few moments that we spend together. May these passages not only inform our thinking, but bind our conscience. May they move our will. May we be obedient and submissive as your people, we pray. In the name of our Savior, amen. So we come then with that mindset to Acts chapter 20, 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, and 1 Peter chapter 5. And those are all the passages that we've been spending our time talking about the leadership within the local church. And there are many others that we could spend time in. But for this purpose this morning, with this second component of this discussion of leadership, we've seen the roles last week. And this week we will look at the character of leadership. We are going to spend our first study time in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. And as we examine the character of leadership at Grace Church we need to understand first the qualifying expectations for the character of leaders. What is it that sets them apart in their quality, their qualifications, uh, to be set aside for the offices of leadership? In particular, 
This morning we're going to focus on pastoral leadership, that is the eldership of the church. They bear the most responsibility under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. They bear the weight of responsibility for the doctrine of the church and the instruction of the church and the oversight and protection of the church. And so we'll begin with them. We'll look at the deacon qualifications, which are also in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And then we'll move forward and examine just a few other key components. Now let me tell you before we jump into 1 Timothy chapter 3 that we are in one of those tough sections of Scripture. In fact, we almost read one of those tough sections this morning, didn't we? Um, You were thinking, how far are we going into Genesis chapter 36? And you were thinking two thoughts. How am I going to stand up for all this? And then how in the world is David going to pronounce these names? Right? It's like pure entertainment. Um, uh, Let's see how far we can go in this. And he didn't read those. Not that those aren't inspired. Those are actually very useful for us as a genealogy. And yet for your sakes and for the sake of clarity and the message of Genesis, we passed over those. Well, we come to another section, not equally difficult for us to read and study, but also similarly difficult because this section has a a couple of long lists, like really long lists. And nothing is harder in our study of the Bible than to stay focused in lists. They are just tough. None of us like to read lists. We just tend to start thinking about other things until we're already at the bottom of the page and we didn't even really read anything. And we just think, how did I walk over those with my eyes, but I didn't see anything? And so here we are this morning, and we're going to study a couple of lists, but we're going to do it in a cursory view. I trust you can stay honed in on these for the sake of your benefit because these really are the expectations that safeguard the leadership of the church from directing it in an inappropriate way or an unbiblical way. When we concluded last week's study, I asked you a question or I raised a question that I figured most of you were wondering. What do we do with leadership in the church when we know that leaders are sinners? What do we do with leadership at Grace Church when we know that leadership is made up of sinners who are in their 20s? I mean, what do we do? How do we have any confidence that God is going to protect, that God is going to give wisdom and direction? What is the basis for any kind of willing submission under the leadership as we're directed in Hebrews 13, verse 17? How do we do that? On what basis can we come to leadership with that kind of a perspective, particularly here in our local expression of Christ's body. These qualities, these qualifications, are the basis of your confidence. Because we believe that Scripture is inspired, because we believe that the mind of God is the place to start as we examine what the church should be, then when we come to these qualifications, we believe these are the perfect God-sent qualities that must mark the character of leadership. And if they do, if these are the qualities that mark the leadership of the local church, then you can be assured, you can be assured that God is blessing, He is working, He is active in the church that He has redeemed. Let's begin then by reading just briefly in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're just going to read the first seven verses. You can follow along as I read them, and then we'll come back and look at these qualities in just a moment. The saying is trustworthy, Paul says. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, last week you remember overseer, elder, and shepherd are three interchangeable they're synonyms um, that all speak of the same office. Here he speaks of the overseer. 
He desires a noble task or a hard work. Therefore, an overseer must be, and here we go with our list, above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. That is, the condemnation that the devil received in heaven when he was puffed up with conceit and wanted to be like the Most High. That's the danger for the new convert in this role of leadership. Moreover, verse 7 concludes, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Here we have our first list, and Titus 1 backs this list up. Actually, it mirrors this list, and I'm going to tell you as we go through these, if you're taking notes this morning, I'm going to tell you in Titus where you can find the same quality. Titus chapter 1, verses 6 through 9 ought to be in your mind when you think of what is a pastor at Grace Church. What are the qualities that make up leadership within the local church? Titus chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now let's go back through the list. Number one, you see in verse 2, an overseer must be above reproach. And that, folks, is the overarching characteristic of those who provide leadership within the local assembly. That is not a distinct characteristic. That is a label that could be worn on all leaders within the local church. They are above reproach. And the remainder of these, um, of these characteristics that are listed out all fall underneath of this above reproach life. They live in such a way that they are above an accusation that would bring reproach upon the name of Christ. You all have known people who have professed faith in Christ and then lived below reproach, right? They have easily brought reproach upon the name of Christ. Not so with the leadership. That cannot mark them. They cannot bear reproach upon the name of Christ. They must be above it. And here's what above reproach looks like for those that would serve as elder pastors of the local church. First characteristic is the husband of one wife. And maybe you've done a little study. Maybe you have a study Bible open before you. But the Greek construction here speaks of a one woman man. This is not one wife at a time. Um, With a plethora of options. This does not mean that every pastor elder needs to be married. This is speaking of a character quality. They are a one woman man. That is, they are singular in their devotion to their wife. They do not play the field. They are not opting for other options. They don't have prenups. Elder pastors are committed to their wife that God has granted to them. Single pastors are committed to the wife that they have not yet known. They are not living in lust. They are not living as multiple women men. This is the one of the characteristics and the first one that's listed here, the husband of one wife. Scripture teaches us elsewhere, and we'll encounter it later, about the issue of divorce and remarriage and even how that fits into this discussion. 
There are those exceptions in divorce that would provide the opportunity for there to be a staple of the husband of one wife. And yet we've come back to the issue of if there is divorce in a family, and we're going to see in verses 4 and 5 that the family matters, can anybody be again above reproach? And that's a, a question for wisdom that the Lord does not clearly spell out. And yet this issue is clearly defined for us Singular focus, a husband of one wife. Notice it is also a husband of one wife. This is not interchangeable. It's not the wife of one husband. This is clearly male in its designation for the elder pastors, the leadership of the church. Secondly, sober-minded. That is, they are not under the influence of some other source. They are sober-minded. And sober is a great word because we still use that today. That's a very common word. That's exactly what it means. They are under control in their mind, in their thinking. They are self-controlled. They are disciplined in their life. We see this in Titus chapter 1 and verse 8. The disciplined, self-controlled life. They are respectable. They live in an orderly fashion, worthy of the respect of those who know them. They are not flippant or foolish or childlike. In their living. They are hospitable. They are open to strangers and visitors. Their home is open. An elder pastor cannot be a recluse. He cannot justifiably under these qualifications be someone who comes and delivers a discourse and then disappears. He must be open to his people and open to those that God would bring along in his path. That is hospitable willingness and a welcome even with strangers and visitors able to teach this is the primary task of the shepherd elder pastor this is the task able to teach they are to teach and feed god's people no other role within the church is demanded to teach except the pastors of the local church not a drunkard this is the mark of self-control that we find in ephesians chapter 5 The control of the Holy Spirit dominates the life of the elder. He is not a drunkard. He does not live under a substance that controls his mind and his activities. He is not violent, but he is gentle. He is not a fighter. Kindness is the mark of his life, as unpopular as that may be. He is not a cutthroat individual. He is kind. And he is not violent. He is not quarrelsome. That is, his way of life is not constantly battling and fighting and arguing and always on the aggressive to start another war. That is not the characteristic of his life. He's not a lover of money. Whether he's rich or poor, he is not one who's marked by his affection for money. And Paul made such an emphasis on this. This we see in the last several we see in Titus chapter 1 and verse 7, not driven by greed for gain, not a lover of money. Managing his own house in verses 4 and 5, we find the one trait, the one characteristic that Paul gives special attention to because of how critical it is for the sake of the title of above reproach being stamped on the life of a pastor, a leader, an elder within the church. Verse 4 says, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone, here's the reason why that's so important. 
For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? How will he care for God's church? And the argument here is from the lesser to the greater. If you are not responsible with the lesser, which is the management, the oversight, the shepherding and direction of the family, then you are unfit for the greater responsibility, which is the oversight, direction, and the accountability of the flock of God himself. Such a sobering reality. The family is the litmus test for the elders' capacity to lead in the household of Christ. These are unbelievable requirements. It finishes then with not a recent convert in verse 6. Maybe your scriptures uh, are translated novice. That's just a beginner. He's not a beginner spiritually. He's not a recent convert. Maturity spiritually is not necessarily tied up in his age. That's the self-preserving explanation. Um, It's not tied up in his age. It's tied up in his spiritual development and in his maturity. That is the standard that is laid out here. In fact, Timothy himself was a very young man. This is part of Paul's instruction. As Timothy is to examine others who would be elders with him there at the church at Ephesus. And then finally, we end with this list, with this one, well thought of by outsiders. There is a reputation with those who do not know Christ that must be maintained as a character trait of the pastor elder. Okay? See why that's so hard? Because half of you are gone. You're just gone right now. That's so tough to handle those lists. And yet that list, that list is the is the controlling factor. It is the guardrail factor that would keep the church safe with its leadership under the oversight of its head, Jesus Christ, with the resource of his word presented to us and the responsibilities of leadership outlined. These character qualities would mark out one as being set apart for this kind of ministry. Now, as I even talk with you about them, uh, I'm overwhelmed by them. Okay? And you might be sitting there thinking, wow, I mean, that's a crazy high standard. I mean, the Lord really takes this seriously. And yet, all but one of these traits, all but one of these traits, which is the ability to teach, which comes through the Holy Spirit's gifting, are also demanded of you as a follower of Christ. These are to be your characteristics. These are to mark out the body of Christ. They are to be these kinds of people And your pastor, elders, those that give leadership to the local church are to set an example of the believer in their word, in their conduct, therefore removing the opportunity for the despising of their youth. And that means something very practical here, doesn't it? So shepherds stand as examples of the character traits that God requires of his people and that he works as fruits of the Spirit. This is not a standard that must be Uh, measured by perfection, which is impossible as a fallen, sinful human being redeemed by Christ. But these qualifications are the direction of the life of the one who is set apart for pastoral ministry. One of the practical ways that I can help you think about this, if you're thinking, "How how do we evaluate this standard with leadership? I mean, in the future, how do we as a body evaluate individuals who would potentially be leadership here within our local assembly. One of the helpful word pictures that's been used for me is these are not, this, this list is a description of 
the movie reel of the life of this one who is a prospective pastor. If you look at the movie reel, at the line of his life, at the timeline, if you will, of his life, this is the character. These are the character traits that you'll see on display through the timeline. These are not snapshots that may or may not be kept at certain moments of time. Now, certainly some of these would cause for greater uh, ramifications if they were in any way brought to the surface. But certainly, I am a sinner. Dave and David are sinners. There are times when we battle to be sober-minded. There are times when we are tempted to be violent and not gentle, to be quarrelsome rather than helpful, to love money rather than to be content with what we have. And yet in those snapshot moments, there must be a dependence upon grace and a return in repentance immediately that would restore and maintain the above reproach quality of the whole of the life. So we take these very, very seriously. These are the basis of choices made about future leadership and even about the present leadership. We went through these as a leadership team When I was in Texas, I remember going through these and discussing them and saying there is none of these that are standing out as patterns of sin in my life that would disqualify me, in David's life that would disqualify him. These are the standard. These are the safeguard. Paul goes on and he describes the deacon as well. Just notice briefly in verses 8 through 13, here's what the deacon looks like. It's going to sound really similar. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So in those first several verses, we see dignified, that is worthy of respect, not double-tongued. They have honest, single speech. They don't proverbially talk out of both sides of their mouth, which is double-tongued. They speak the truth. They're not addicted to much wine. They are not under the influence, the controlling influence of an addiction and a drunkenness. They are not greedy. Money is always an issue with Paul. And the mark of character here is even the deacons who are not authority within the church but serve as exemplary leaders. These deacons must not be greedy of dishonest gain. They must have a clear conscience, which is their doctrinal authenticity, And they must be tested to prove that they are indeed above reproach. Then we come to verse 11 in chapter 3. And you notice that it says their wives in your English Standard Version. If you have a New American Standard Version, you probably have the women. Likewise, women. I would agree with the New American Standard that the best translate, the only translation here from the very words that are used in the original languages is that it is the women, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. And so we believe that this designates, the likewise here designates a third category. There are pastor elders, overseers, in verses 1 through 7. There are male deacons, represented in verses 8 through 10, and then come back again, and we'll see them at the end of this section. And there are lady deacons. There are women deacons who are represented here in verse 11. And so in verse 11, we see this quality of women not set apart as the wives of deacons. There are no qualifications for the wives of elders. So from the greater responsibility to the lesser, it would seem 
The argument is only strengthened that this is talking about a category of ladies within the church who serve as deacons. They must be dignified, same as the men. They must not be slanderers. They must be careful with their mouths. And I'm not going to make any generalizations about ladies and mouths. But deacons who are ladies must not be slanderers. They must be godly women with their speech. This is a quality of their life. They must be sober-minded, and they must be faithful in all things. The spiritual quality of faithfulness. As servant leaders, as those who set the pace and provide the opportunity for the elder pastors to give themselves to what is most critical as leaders within the church, these ladies must be faithful in all things. Paul comes back then to men, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, that is the one woman man concept again, managing their children and their own households well, which is clearly the role of the husband and father. For those who serve well as deacons, here's the reward, here's the blessing. For those who serve well as deacons, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So these are the qualities. These are kind of the the overarching themes that, that mark the character traits of those who give direction and who serve as exemplary leaders in the deacon's case within the church because of our view of scripture we are not free as a ministry that is we grace church like this is very personal we are not free to recognize servant leaders that are not proven to be qualified in their character for the offices of the church there must be time to examine the character and the quality of those that god brings who no doubt many of you represent as future leadership here within Grace Church. This is the comforting safety net of the Scriptures as the rule and guide for our church gathered here on this planet. We aren't left to our own wisdom and discretion on the matter of leadership. We have a guide. We have a standard. We are not judging to set this standard up. We are allowing God to judge by adhering to His standard. So that is the first, and that is the qualifications. But I want to come back to these character traits in the pastor's life, and I want to give you two other components of pastoral character. We've seen the pastoral qualifications, and we've seen the deacon qualifications. Let me come back now to the pastor elders, and let's look at just just briefly two other components. First of all, I want us to see the pastoral passion. What is the passion? What is the direction? What drives? What... um, What imperatives does he live by? What consumes his time? And for that, I want to go back to Acts chapter 20, where we started this morning looking at that amazing statement from the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 20, Paul gives some very clear instructions to these elders, these pastors at Ephesus. And he does so beginning in verse 28. And I wanted to share these with you. These are the pastoral passions that must make up the character of godly leadership within the local church. Verse 28, Paul turns the corner of talking about his own testimony, and he now gives instruction. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And then he goes on down in verse 31, and he says, Therefore, be alert remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish you or admonish everyone with tears. 
So three pastoral passions come out of just these two verses, 28 and 31. Number one, detailed discipleship. There is a passion for detailed discipleship. Not simply an awareness that we are accomplishing the feeding task by joining here and studying God's word, but embracing the reality that we must pay careful attention to ourselves as shepherds, as pastors, and to the flock. As uncomfortable as it is, flock, you need to be cared for with special attention. There needs to be detailed discipleship in your lives. We want to come alongside and encourage and help you. We need to know you to actually have that role in your lives. Secondly, in the pastoral passions, not only a detailed discipleship, but a compassionate care. There is a love for the flock. The Holy Spirit has made us overseers in the flock to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. To care, to have concern, to be moved with compassion for God's people. These are the passions of the pastor. And then finally, the alertness that we see in verse 31 marks out a wartime watchfulness as elders and pastors. Therefore, be alert. Why must they be alert? Well, Paul had already informed them that wolves would creep in and try to eat the sheep. There would be false doctrine, false teachers that would try to erode what God was working in Ephesus in that local church. And he says, you've got to be on alert. You've got to be watchful. You've got to be in your wartime mode. There's an enemy who's here and he is attacking. So shepherds, pastors, elders, put your armor on and get your eyes open and watch for the sake of protecting the flock. Those are the pastoral passions. And then finally, just because I couldn't pass up the opportunity, go to 1 Peter chapter 5. I just wish I had a good excuse to stay in 1 Peter a whole lot more with you and maybe there is a good excuse in time. But 1 Peter 5 is so helpful because here we don't see just qualifications or passions or directives, but we see motivations. We see heart motivations that direct the activities of the shepherd, of the pastor. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5 near the end of your Bible if you're struggling to find it. 1 Peter chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight. So he says, be good shepherds and do so with an oversight to the ministry, with a management of the people of God. And then he describes the motivations with these powerful words. Not under compulsion, verse 2 says, but willingly as God would have you. Not under compulsion. In other words, not just duty, but delight. Not because you have to, but because you want to. The motivation of the shepherd is driven by his love for the flock, and he leads and elders and directs, not just out of duty, but out of delight. Verse 2 goes on to say, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not shameful greed, for money, but genuine eagerness to see God's work accomplished in God's people. And then the last one is found in verse 3. He says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The motivation of the heart of the shepherd is not to dominate 
It is not a dictatorship. It is not an oligarchy of of set-aside men who get the good old boys club together and then they dominate the congregation with their decision-making. It's not worldly domination. It's not a business model. It's not a CEO and a CFO. But it is a powerful, exemplary living that gives direction to God's people. These are the motivations that drive the pastoral ministry, the pastoral leadership within the local church. Verse number four is a fitting place for us to stop, and we need to. This, we've covered this material. If you'd like more in-depth study, we've covered this material on Sunday nights in our study of First and Second Timothy. But verse number four in First Peter 5 is a great place to conclude because it gives the reward for this kind of shepherding that's proper motivated, properly motivated and appropriate in its passions and then obviously qualified for that role. Here's, here's the promise. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading, unfading crown of glory. What is the promise given here for the elder pastor leadership of the local church, the plurality of leaders within the church? It is that if they will be faithful to accomplish the task that they have been given with the motivations that they have been instructed to have, with hearts that are genuinely compassionate for God's people, with a quality of life and a character that is impeccable, then they will enjoy, they will enjoy the blessing of the chief shepherd rewarding them with an unfading, that is an eternal crown of glory. The eternal reward of heaven in the presence of Christ, the chief shepherd, is the end goal and desire. It is what the shepherd here on earth as an under-shepherd, the elder, the pastor, the overseer, looks toward as the end of all things. It is that blessing, it is that glory, that crown of glory, that reward of unending glory that the pastor looks forward to. And I say that that's a fitting place for us to close because of this. Elsewhere, Peter makes it quite clear that that is also the end for which you must exist, even if you're never a part of pastoral leadership. You see, in Peter's understanding of the local church, and in Paul's understanding of the local church, and in the whole New Testament's understanding of the local church, which is under the inspiration of God Himself, the whole focus of the local church the undying desire of the local church and all of its components is for the appearing of the chief shepherd, for the head to return. Christ is the centerpiece. He is everything from the leadership even into the body parts of the local church. Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd's return, is the highlight for which we exist. We look forward to it with anticipation. And I confess, like Ken did this morning, that often I am not anticipating that. I am not looking to that end. And this, this passage, this little verse, reminds us that this is to be a desire and a focus of our existence, both as leadership and as the body in membership as it exists together in the congregation. It is the chief shepherd whom we are concerned with here at Grace Church. We are concerned with Him because He died to rescue us. He made Grace Church. He made it at the cross where He rescued us from our sin. 
The church is his body, saved by his blood, redeemed for, as his bride to the praise of his grace, Ephesians 1 tells us. Therefore, every part of the church must be conformed to the desire of its head so that it rightly reflect his character and glory to the world that does not follow him. So I've got two questions as we conclude our time together and as we prepare to remember the Lord's sacrifice. Two questions for you this morning. Number one, are you a follower of the head of the church, Jesus Christ? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? That's a biblical description of what it is to be a Christian. Have you turned from your sin, placed your confidence, your faith, your belief in what you cannot see, in the finished sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the sake of sinners. And then the second question, the second question follows quickly on the heels, are you committed are you committed to the centrality of Christ in the church? Which overflows into are you believer committed to the centrality of Jesus Christ in your life? Do you really live for him? Do we really want this church to be for Him? Do we want this leadership to exemplify what He desires for us? Do we want each of us as members of the body who have been gifted for the body to bring honor and glory to our head, to Jesus Christ? If the answer to question number one is yes, then the question to number two needs to be yes. If you are a follower of Christ, you need to be committed to the centrality of Christ. Part of how we do that, believer, is to constantly remind ourselves of the gospel. Some of that means you preach the gospel to yourself on a daily basis. And then very practically, there is a real component of remembering that has been set up for us. And that is the Lord's table. This helps us remember that He is everything to us as a local church. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, this remembrance is not for you. We are going to publicly declare that we believe that the sacrifice of Christ covered our sins and we are remembering it with joy. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you've never submitted your life to Him to follow Him, then you have no cause to remember this sacrifice, only cause to fear this one who died. For he will judge those who reject him and he will send them to an eternal punishment as their just reward. But if you will turn from your sin and believe today, he offers you forgiveness. That's the message of the good news of Jesus Christ.